You are listening to Rootbound, a podcast about plants for when you're stuck inside. Rootbound is brought to you by the month of February. Is it too early to start your seeds indoors? Probably. Are you going to do it anyway? Absolutely. February, the impatient gardener's march. Hi. Thanks for listening. This is Rootbound, and I'm your host, Steve. Rootbound is the podcast about plants for when you're stuck inside. Each week, I invite a guest who joins me on the program and talks about a plant that means something to them, and then I share with the guest about a plant that means something to me, and through this process, we can all learn more about plants and learn more about each other. But before we meet our guest today, I want to talk about the USDA hardiness zones. If you're a gardener or you're just even aware of gardening, you've probably heard about these zones. Uh, People say, oh, I'm in zone 5 or I'm in zone 6B, um, etc. I happen to be in zone 7B, but I do admit that I really didn't know what this meant until I just researched it for this episode. Like, I knew it had something to do with, like, what plants you can grow where, but, like, how those zones were designated, I didn't really know. And as you can hear in the episode... Um, I also always got confused about which direction the zones went. I always thought that they started in the south and got higher as you went north. So, you know, zone one being in the south and zone 13, which is the the highest zone in in, uh, the United States, um, being in the north. But that is not the case. They go from north to south. And so when I was talking with a guest uh, in this episode, I was a little bit confused about which zone the guest might be in because of that confusion in my mind. But anyway... The zones do start with the lowest ones in the far north of the country, and they go down to the south. But what do they mean? It's actually very simple. The zones just have to do with the long-term average annual extreme minimum temperatures. That's it. That's the only thing that the hardiness zones uh, account for. Um, They don't account for things like how hot it gets. They don't account for humidity. They don't account for like how long the winter is. They don't account for changes in seasons. It's only the long-term average annual extreme minimum temperatures. So for example, zone seven where I live, the long-term average annual extreme minimum temperatures are between zero degrees Fahrenheit and 10 degrees Fahrenheit. And for the rest of the world out there, that's uh, between negative 17.8 Celsius and negative 12.2 Celsius. I'll let you do the rest of the conversions later because the USDA hardiness zones map is in Fahrenheit. So that means that in this area, the maximum cold that's ever going to really get is zero degrees Fahrenheit, between zero and 10 degrees Fahrenheit. It's never going to get colder than that. So if you want to grow a plant, it needs to be that, it needs to be hardy to that temperature. It it needs to not die if it gets that cold. And that's really what the, the zones are for. It's like, hey, what plants can I grow in this area that will not die in the winter? That's basically what it's for. Um, and then I mentioned earlier, though, I, sa- I said I was in zone 7B. So sometime later, the USDA revised the zone system and broke it even further into 5 degree Fahrenheit sections. So 7B is from 5 degrees Fahrenheit to 10 degrees Fahrenheit. So I'm in the slightly warmer of the seven zones. Our guest who we hear from today is in zone 8B. So a little bit further south, that is... Uh, the minimum temperatures between 15 degrees Fahrenheit and 20 degrees Fahrenheit. So that's that's what the zone systems mean. It's a useful tool for trying to grow certain plants, but it's not like the end-all be-all for like 
what can grow where. There's lots of places that have the same zone number that are entirely different climates. So it's just a tool. It's a lot simpler than I thought it was, um, but very interesting to know. And uh, yeah, zone 7B. USDA Hardiness Zone. Hi, Genevieve. Thank you for joining me on this episode of Rootbound. Hi, Steve. I'm happy to be here. Very wonderful to have you. Uh, Do you have a plant to share with us today? I do. I would like to talk about hydrangeas. Wonderful. Okay. This is, this is exciting. I don't, I can't even picture a hydrangea right now. Like I know it's a common flower. And also I've said hydrangea and you said hydrangea, which I'm, maybe we'll talk about in a little bit, but anyway, <laughs> let's, let's hear about it. Why did, why did you choose this? Why are they meaningful to you? Um, I chose hydrangeas because I, first of all, I think they're beautiful. The size and shapes are really different from a lot of other flowers. And I just appreciate their unique vibe. Um, but also I had seen them in floral arrangements and I, I thought they were cool, but I remember the first time I saw a hydrangea bush and I had just moved to Seattle. I was fresh out of college. I was in a new state and I was driving down a residential street. Um, and the neighborhood had a lot of what they called monkey tail trees. I don't actually know the real name of the trees, but their branches look like monkey tails and they're very okay. like Susian kind of. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I was just marveling at these trees and then I came upon a house that had hydrangea bushes lining their front yard and, um, the blooms were enormous and the colors were really vibrant and the bushes almost looked alive the way they kind of spilled out of the flower beds. So I just pulled over and like stared at them, um, thinking that, you know, between these monkey tail trees and these incredible hydrangeas, which I'd never seen in the wild, I just thought, wow, I've moved to the most truly magical place. And um, I lived there for three years, and every single time I saw a hydrangea bush, which they're all over up there, um, I just thought they were so beautiful. And um, it's just a reminder. For me, my years in that area were some of the best of my life. And so even now, every time I see a hydrangea, um, it just reminds me of the really good times that I had there and just being young and all the possibilities that life would hold in this really like magical place. Wonderful. Um, yeah, though, that's a really nice story. I think, I think plants tend to do that, like to like cement themselves in like formative times in our lives. At least I've heard that several times on this (laughs) podcast. Um, I just did Google them and yeah, okay. I know what a hydrangea is. Um, yeah, they're really cool. They do remind me of, of a bit of peonies, but not quite, not they're, they're similar shape, but the petals are quite a bit different close up, but like the general shape is is kind of a, a big puff ball of color yeah and interestingly they don't have petals they have sepals which oh, i learned in my in my research um that is interesting yes so they uh they all start out as green all the, the little sepals and they're these little tiny leaves that protect the flower bud and then as the plants age they change color and turn into what look like flower uh, petals but they are not that is really fascinating. Yeah, I I, I uh, defined the word sepal, I think, on the first or second episode of the podcast. And that's when I learned, okay, I know what a sepal is now. And so for me now, it's really fa- fascinating because like, hydrangea, why don't you, why didn't you just decide to have petals? But it's just decided to, yeah, it's, sim- it's just it's, like that's to interesting. be different. It's like uh, kind of on the other side of it is the... Um, we talked about the mimosa tree and that tree only has pistols. It has no petals at all. So well, yeah, I guess it does. Yeah, right. It, so the, the, the floofy fe- feathery things are, are not, mm-hmm. are not feather. So yeah, super fascinating. That's really interesting. Um, <laughs> do you have any other fun facts or dazzling details? Um, what, what, what else do we need to know about hydrangea? Hydrangea. Well, 
Yeah. Well, first of all, I did. I found out when I was doing my research. I have been pronouncing it wrong for twenty years, probably. Uh, it is hydrangea. Okay. Not hydrangea, which is you know what I had always said. So hydrangeas. Um, there are there's a lot of interesting information about their symbolism. So, um, mm. for example, in Japan, they are a sign of gratitude and heartfelt emotion, and they're also native to Eastern Asia, primarily Japan. Um, so okay. that was a lot of the stuff I found was about, you know, hydrangeas in, uh, in Japan. So in Japan, they are a sign of gratitude and heartfelt emotion, but Victorians thought that they symbolized boastfulness and vanity because they produce many flowers, but not many seeds. Oh, interesting. interesting. Yeah. That, I, that just made me laugh because the thought of a flower representing, you know, boastfulness and vanity, it's just a beautiful flower. What's, yeah. why yeah. are you so mad yeah. at it, Victorians? So- they they were mad at a lot of stuff. That's true. That's true. It was yeah. a different time. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. Um, and the colors also symbolize different things. So uh, the the colors of a hydrangea could be pink or blue or white or purple. And pinks is uh, love and sincerity. Blue represents forgiveness or apology. White represents boasting or bragging. Again. Okay. <laughs> and purple is abundance and understanding. Understanding, you said? Yes, yes, understanding. I was just imagining like you give someone, like if you give someone a bouquet of white hydrangeas and they don't know what it means or like you don't know what it means and you cause a real snafu (laughs) because you're like, oh, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, it could be bad. And and also interestingly about the the colors, um, so you can change the color of a hydrangea. Um, The color is related to the uh, pH of the soil. So oh. you can change them from blue to pink or pink to blue, but the white ones will not be changed because something about the white hydrangea, uh, specifically the pH of the soil does not affect its color. So it will not be changed, but um, you can change a blue hydrangea to a pink one by adding ground limestone, which will increase the alkalinity of the soil, or you can change it from pink to blue by adding aluminum sulfate. To the soil to increase the acidity. So the, the colorful ones you can change, but the white ones, which are boasting or bragging are just not to be messed with. Interesting. They're like a mm-hmm. little, but the blue and pink ones are like little, they're like little pH meters uh, in flowers. Yeah. And it can take weeks or months to change the color. Um, but okay. yeah, I, I thought that was so interesting. I had no idea. I don't know of another flower where you can decide what color it's going to be. That's pretty interesting. Um, I'm looking at a picture of them now close up because I mean, you see a bush of them, which I first looked at, you know, they look and that's where I was like, oh, they, they look a little bit like peonies from a distance. But close up, it's super clear now what you said that they the petals do not look like normal petals in this because they're not. That's so cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How interesting. Yeah. And um, the um, sepals can also so they start out green and they turn into other colors but i believe they can turn back to green um under certain conditions too oh wow very interesting what a little like (laughs) like chameleon flower yes who knew yeah um yeah what what else do you have about hydrangeas hydrangeas i'm sorry well mispronouncing this stuff that's it. I know it's a big change. It's a big change for all of us. We're just we're just gonna do our best. Um, they are beautiful, but they are poisonous. 
So all Whoa. parts of the plant contain, yeah, yeah, I know. All parts of the plant contain compounds that release cyanide when they're ingested. So you have to be especially careful around children or pets who might be more likely to just put a random flower in their mouth. Some grownups too, probably. Um, but you do have to be careful. But the flip on the flip side, some cultures have used it for healing purposes. So um, some Buddhists use uh, the leaves to make tea, which they use in cleansing rituals or to treat some illnesses and different medical conditions. And also some American Indian peoples have used the root as a diuretic um, and the bark for pain relief for aches and burns. So don't try that at home, but... Yes. Interesting. You know, that, that is something that comes up so often on the show is, you know, so many things do have like traditional medicinal use. And I always have to like make sure we tell the audience, don't try it. <laughs> this is not a yes. recommendation. But it is interesting, this like dichotomy of like things that are like toxic, but also have had uses traditionally. And, and there's definitely some middle gray, middle gray area in there. Uh, and it's always fascinating mm -hmm. to think about. Yes. It, yeah, it actually reminds it, me of when really, you really when you mentioned this the the compounds with cyanide. Those are probably compounds mm -hmm. called cyogenic compounds, which is a word I learned when I was talking about elderberry. Which elderberry is a common remedy, but you have to cook the elderberries because they do contain cyogenic compounds, and so the the cooking tends to break them down. So. It's just interesting how the how, yeah, the, the, the the commonalities and the different things in these different plants. Yeah. It's very interesting. Let's see. I do um, have some other fun facts. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Okay. Um, well, hydrangeas are a common fourth wedding anniversary gift, and they are given to show fourth? appreciation. Fourth, yeah. <laughs> Who oh knew? man, I missed that a long time ago. Who knew? <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, we just had ours, and neither one of us gave the other hydrangeas. Oh darn! I mean, I get, it's probably good that you. I, <laughs> I would think if you're gonna give them as a gift, probably don't give the white ones because again, it sure. represents boasting or bragging. So maybe stick to the colored <laughs> ones. Um, good, good yeah, idea. Good idea. You know, who, who knew? Yeah. Yes. Um, also, they are fragrance free which is nice if you're sensitive to, to fragrances and they're safe for allergies or for people who have allergies because their pollen is really sticky. And so it's not easily picked up by the wind and kind of spread all over. That so, is really interesting. I have, I have some questions is, there that, that you may not know the answer to. So if, if not, like I always say, audience, you can Google it, but it's interesting that one, they don't smell, which I don't think I realized. Is that, that's the case? They don't have a real strong smell or any smell? They don't. No, they don't really. Which makes sense because yeah. they don't have petals. But then what I'm thinking is if their mm. pollen is sticky, which normally sticky pollen is pollen that's designed to be moved by insects, then why don't they have a smell? I don't know. I don't know. I don't either. I was kind of curious uh, about that too, and I couldn't find specific details about it so well maybe if anybody audience either knows. yes indeed write in let us know because or or, or just <laughs> google it it's okay uh, but that's that's really interesting um it's a good flower for people who have allergies i guess yes yes so that is that is very good to know um what 
else? Oh, and Ed, the oak leaf hydrangea is the state wildflower of Alabama. Oh, cool. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and hydrangeas can grow in almost almost every part of the U.S., so uh, except for extreme, extreme cold or extreme, extreme heat. So uh, they are present in many of the states, but they are the state wildflower of Alabama. And they tend to grow from uh, May to July is generally their growing season. But January 5th is, is Hydrangea Day. So there is a day to celebrate it. Okay. But Probably <laughs> not when they're in season. I don't know who made from- that. Someone somewhere <laughs> yeah. else or something, yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know who put that on the calendar, but uh, happy almost Hydrangea Day, everybody <laughs> out there. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> yes, and they have been around for a very long time. Um, fossils have shown that they were in North America as long as 40 to 65 million years ago. So that's really interesting. Is... I mean, because you brought that up and mentioning they were like from Asia and like this tradition in japan but they are actually native flowers in in this continent as well that yes they are native to the u.s and eastern um asia and then so they were they were here as long as 40 to 65 million years ago but they didn't get to europe until the early 18th century somehow that's really fascinating that yeah i i, I didn't know that they were i uh you know a native flower i wonder i, I should go try to see some in the wild that's cool mm-hmm yeah, they're pretty pretty incredible. I was hoping maybe to to plant some here. I don't know. I don't really see it, even though they're technically in, I think they, they grow in zones three through seven of the United okay. States. I think you um, were right there. I, I think we're, we're like on the very edge. Um, so maybe one day I will plant one and we will all really live it. Yeah, I'm going to look into some, see if there's some native varieties around Virginia because I'm really la- into planting like uh, native wildflowers, mm-hmm. and I, I never, I never considered a hydrangea because you just think of them as being like ones you find in this, you know, bouquets or like, you know, yeah. shrubberies or something like that. And generally, those are not like local. But I wonder if there is like a local mm-hmm. East Coast hydrangea that I can, that I can plant. Probably there are over seventy five species. Wow! So surely there's there's one that you can find up there, and they come in three different general shapes too, which I didn't know. I'd only seen the big round sort of clusters mm-hmm. um which is called a mop head <laughs> that's yeah. that's the shape mop <laughs> head word. it's it's like a big round pom-pom yeah mop head i love it um but then you can also have lace caps which are delicate and flat and more sort of lacy or a panicle which is uh cone shaped oh very interesting yeah. cool yeah i, I like had, that word I, panicle I yeah and i looked at some pictures and th- those are really pretty it's you know it's uh, it, it's a different look. The the sepals still look the same, and the coloring is still the same. But it was just interesting to see it in a, a totally different shape. And then the the flat ones are um, the lace cap ones are really pretty in a different way. Wonderful. Uh, Do we miss yeah. any hydra- hydrangea fun facts or dazzling details? I believe that is it. Um, oh, also commonly called hortensia. Which I had heard of, but I had no idea that, yeah, I I had no idea that Hortensia and Hydrangea were the same. Hydrangea Zone. Well, great. Well, thank you for telling me about Hydrangeas. Do you mind if I share a plant with you? Please do. 
Okay, so I think I think you knew this, but we're both Texans. I was born in Texas. Yes, and so yes. when I when I was deciding to uh, pick a plant, I was like, well, I will pick the blue bonnet. Excellent choice. Yes, indeed, indeed. Which uh, which, if the audience doesn't know, is the state wildflower of Texas. Uh, and I found some interesting facts about that that I didn't know. Um, and I'll get into maybe some of that in a second. But let's just get into kind of some of the like basics of the flower. The the genus of um, the blue bonnet is lu- lu- uh, lupinus. So they're lupines. Mm-hmm. And in general, the blue bonnet is just a series of speci- a few specific species of lupines that are native to Texas and that are blue. But there are other kinds of lupines that have different colors and different shapes. Um, but the blue bonnet is a kind of lupine, and there is a number of different uh, species that could be considered blue bonnets. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, the the most well, not maybe the, the most common, but the uh, first official flower of Texas was in 1901, and that was Lupinus subcarnosus. Um, and uh, that was when the state officially, that's the first time they had any state flower in it. It's been since then, the blue bonnet. And Lupinus subcarnosus, that uh, specific epithet at the end, subcarnosus, means somewhat fleshy, which I, I, I don't know, know why. Maybe they're a little <laughs> bit like the flowers oh. are somewhat fleshy, I guess. I don't know. But that was the state flower in 1901. However, I found several pretty great articles but i think the best one was from a website called forgotten winds it's written by a woman named christina stephens or stevens and then there was also one on uh texashillcountry.com a few other places where they talked about the history of how it got chosen as the state flower and so it was chosen in 1901 basically it was like in the 1800s there was some kind of world's fair where all the countries decided we're going to have our national flower that wasn't a thing until like worldwide until around then but then i think all the states were like we got to get in on this national flower thing or never knew state flower <laughs> and there was this whole uh like back and forth about what should the state flower of texas be and there was um uh there was one guy who wanted it to be cotton and he called it the white flower of industry um, or the white rose of industry <laughs> Uh, and then there was another guy who, who was apparently, I, I forget his name, audience, you can fill it in, but he was, um, he was Roosevelt's, uh, the first Roosevelt's vice president. Oh man, I'm going to be wrong on that audience. Correct me. He was a vice president. I don't know whose vice president he was, but he was from Texas and he wanted it to be the prickly pear, uh, as the state flower oh. of Texas, which makes sense. But I sure. guess people didn't like that, and because of that, they gave him the nickname <laughs> Cactus Jack, and it stuck with him the rest of his life. He was known as Cactus Jack. <laughs> um, and then the the uh, finally, I forget who it was who decided to make it the the uh, the blue bonnet, and that was supported by a, a really prominent women's group at the time, and they made it this flower, which was Lupinus subcarnosus. But then after that, there started to be this argument of like, wait a minute. Why Lupinus subcarnosus? There's another uh, blue bonnet that is Lupinus texensis. So, so everyone's like, well, why did you pick this one specific species of uh, blue bonnet? And especially when there's another one that is called Lupinus texensis, the Texas blue bon- mm. or Texas lupine. And so, uh, in 1971, the legislature amended the 1901 statute to include Lupinus texensis and quote any other variety of blue bonnet not heretofore recorded. And because of that, Texas technically has six state official flowers. 
Wow. And there's six specific genuses of bluebonnet. We have Lupinus harvardi, Lupinus perensis, Lupinus platensis, Lupinus subcarnosus, Lupinus texensis, and Lupinus uh, uh, consinus. So there wow. you go. I did not know that. Do they do they look significantly different? Would I be able to see six different kinds if I looked out at a field? I, they probably tend to grow in colonies together. At least that's my guess. Okay. But they do have slightly different looks. For example, the one that was a the the, the subcarnosis I think is um is a bit like taller and and maybe a little bit more spindly, whereas the Texensis is is bigger. Texas like you know that's what they call the Texas. And so like they they probably have different like slightly different morphologies, um, but they look pretty similar. And as a group, I don't know, probably hard, be hard to say which one it is specifically. Interesting. I'll, I'll look into it. And in the spring when they're blooming, I like to drive out into the hill country because you can just see fields and fields of them. And so I'll, I'll do my research and I'll go look and see if I can tell the difference. Yes. In fact, there was, uh, there was something I read and I forget the person who, who it was, but there was actually a specific like, uh, mission of the state of Texas to plant blue bonnets along roadsides and they spread mm-hmm. there now. And people still do that, but it, it's, it's been in place for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know. So I don't know if you came across this, but, and I don't know if this is an urban legend or actual law, but I have always been told my whole life that it is illegal to pick blue bonnets. This is, I'm glad you brought this up because I was, I totally had this memory as a kid in, in Texas. And here's the thing. It is not illegal to pick blue bonnets in Texas. Oh. Now, I was like, okay, I heard this my whole life. And when you Google it, there's so many people asking it. And they're like, this is one of the most common myths. Um, Texas, like a uh, highway department, like has a, like a stock answer they send to everybody every year. Cause everyone always asks this every year in the, in the spring. And I was like, well, where did this myth come from? Because, yeah, all the first articles I found were all like, no, it's not illegal, but it is illegal to trespass and it is illegal to, like, damage property and it is illegal to block a roadside. And there's so there's a lot of reasons why you shouldn't pick them illegally. And also, you probably shouldn't pick them just because you don't want to damage things. But, you know, picking one would be fine. But I was like, okay, yeah. but that there has to be some source of the myth. It can't just be like, like who heard this? <laughs> and so finally, and this is actually made a mistake. The the Forgotten Winds article was about the myth of picking blue bonnets. The uh the article about the um the the story of how it became the state flower, there's one from Barbara Medford that was uh on a site that I'll link in the show notes. And then there was another website called netstate.com that had a really great story. But but uh but Christina Stevens on Forgotten Winds had a really great article that explained how this myth came to be and it's because there used to be a law in texas that made it illegal to not just pick blue bonnets but to pick any wildflower and it was called the wildflower protection act and it was in place from 1933 to 1973 so it makes sense i think for you and me you know growing up not too long after 1973 people probably was still Mm -hmm. common knowledge and and i couldn't find why the law went away it was just like a reference saying that the law was erased from the books during a reform in the criminal code. So it seemed like it was probably erased with lots of other laws or yeah. something. I'm, I'm not sure, but um, it was. And, and, and this article that I read, it was really humorous because um, when they were introducing the law, the guy who was introducing it, they were like, giving him a hard time because you're like are you gonna like arrest a child for picking a flower for his teacher <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> or like this I, this yeah I, 
actually, I used to teach first grade. Uh-huh. And on our playground, we had a little patch of blue bonnets off to the side. And, you know, the kids love to pick anything and bring it to you. And it didn't, you know, they would, I, all day I was getting rocks and just anything they found <laughs> on the playground that they wanted to give me, which is very kind. So sweet. And, yeah. um, yeah. And one of them picked a blue bonnet one day and they gave it to me. And I think I, I had my pockets full of, you know, other rocks and flowers and twigs and whatnot. And so I just kind of, I didn't want another flower. And I said, oh, thank you so much. That's really sweet. But, you know, we're not supposed to pick blue bonnets. It's against the law. It's illegal. So why don't we just leave them there and we can just see them every day when we come out to recess? And another kid said, oh, it's illegal. Are you going to go to jail for it? And the the kid that had picked it, just his eyes got really big and he was sort of like, "Ah, I didn't, I didn't know he was so afraid that the blue bonnet police were going to come like get him and haul him away. And I said, no, I I don't think it's, I don't think it's that kind of (laughs) illegal. I think it's just frowned upon. Let's just not do it. You're probably not going to go to jail. Sorry about that. I, I hope I didn't, you know, unintentionally scar him. He's probably fine. He's not in, (laughs) wherever he is, he's not in blue bonnet jail. That's good. And even when it was illegal from 33 to 73, I think the maximum fine was $10. So um, oh, okay. well, nobody I think was ever in that flower is a jail. Lot of money. That's true. But That's true. No in the, especially in 1973 dollars. And I mean, 1973 dollars. Yeah. Forget about it. Um, oh, geez. Yeah. The um, <laughs> it, Another thing that came up in the process of, of, of uh, making this law, someone said that this law is, the, is, is antithetical to romance. <laughs> which is pretty interesting yeah. um, but but then the other side of the story was is there was apparently a, a a reasonably big problem of people going out to wildflowers and and basically picking them and then selling them in the city mm. and so then they were like people from the country were like how would a how would a city guy from texas like it if i came over and stole his roses uh so yeah that's fair you know, fair point so anyway, it was it was put into law, um, and I don't really know much about its history, but I think that's why it has this prevailing myth, and it's probably good because you know you don't want people damaging lots of of, of wildflowers. But if a kid picks one, he definitely will not end up in blue bonnet jail. <laughs> oh, okay, good to know. Yeah. <laughs> um. Back back to the name for a second. Uh, well, blue bonnet is pretty obvious. They have these little blue. Uh, the flowers look like these little. Little bonnets are miniature, but that's that's mm-hmm. uh, that's fine. But the name, the, the scientific name, lupine. I was like, why lupine or lup, lup, lupinus? Um, mm-hmm. And that comes from the word wolf. Lupine means that's like wolf. That's what I was thinking. I was trying to connect that in my brain. Yeah, and I was like, why? And so I found three answers, and I don't know if I believe all of any of them or all of them. I'm not sure. The first, <laughs> well, the first one I read is that it's because lupines, uh, like hydrangeas, are also poisonous and so the thought is that they kill livestock just like wolves do so don't graze your but graze your cattle on on blue bonnets but i don't think that's really they're not that poisonous i don't think so i uh not that's true then the other one i found and this is the most common one which apparently there was a belief even though i can't find any source of this beliefs and the belief is definitely not true is that they is that they were bad for soil and so the idea is that they wolfishly devoured the nutrients in soil Huh. But that that's not true. They're actually in the legume family, so they actually fix nitrogen like all other legumes. So they're actually good oh. for the soil. But I, I guess there was some belief that they were bad for soil at some point. But actually, probably the real answer is, 
this is my guess. My guess is this is the real answer. And the other answers were just made up because people couldn't figure out why is <laughs> some lupines. And I don't think this is true for blue bonnets, or at least I haven't seen it, but some lupines, if you pull back the, the more bonnet part of the flower, there's another part of the flower that kind of looks almost exactly like a wolf tooth, the way wow. that it's shaped. Okay. And I'll put a picture in the show notes. It's a little hard to describe. I found there's a really clear picture on this one side that like, this is why it's called a lupine. And it's like, oh, there's a, totally a fang there. Um, okay. But I try to look at some pictures, close-ups of blue bonnets. The blue bonnets are considerably smaller than these other lupines that, that it was clear on. And I don't know if it takes that specific shape, but it's the genus. So not all genuses are similar. But anyway, it's a mystery, a little bit of mystery why they're called lupines. Yeah. Well, you're that probably makes the most sense, but... <laughs> Yeah, Who knows? indeed. And then the, the last little bit that I wanted to bring up when I thought about blue bonnets and, and this totally brought back memories and, and you probably have plenty to say about this is the Texas blue bonnet award. Is that still a thing? It is. Yes. In fact, I believe the new, the winners are going to be announced in January. I think that's right. Uh, Very yeah, every year. Yeah. But I want you to explain mm-hmm. it. Cause I, I was just refreshing myself today. You probably know much more about it. Sure. Well, as an elementary school librarian, I can tell you, um, there are uh, books that are selected every year. Every state has their own state list of um, award-winning books. And the Texas award winners are called the Blue Bonnet Books. And they are for elementary, um, I believe it's like pre-K through six, so the full range of elementary um, grades. And there are um, 20-ish every year, and they're picture books all the way up through chapter books. And every year at the Texas Library Association, they do uh, a little breakfast where you get to actually go and meet the authors, and they, uh, you get to tell them how much you love their books. And I'm hoping that I can go meet the authors um, this spring when, it is, when the meeting is in Austin. But yeah, they're blue bonnet books every year. Um, there's a special little sticker you put on the spine label, so you could go to your library and you can you can look and you can find this year's blue bonnet books. I totally remember that little sticker. Yes, and 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 that and the 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 funny thing though was is when I tried to look at the list. So my my understanding and correct me if I'm wrong, the idea is that there's a list of books, but then the students get to decide which is the best. Like the, it's like a voting thing across the state. Is that right? They do. So here's where I'm a little bit fuzzy. Um, I know like when I was a kid, my school, um, you could read a certain number of the blue bonnet books. Mm -hmm. And then if you read a certain number, then you got to vote on to see what our elementary school wanted to, what our, which one our elementary school thought was going to be the winner. Um, so I do believe that you are correct that it is across the state. Um, kids can vote, but also a lot of individual schools have their own little blue bonnet um, vote. So, so maybe what they vote or what the one that they pick may not be the state winner sure. necessarily, but it's, it's just a fun way to, uh, you know, to, to participate, to read some books. And I know some schools go all out and have, um, like I knew a school that did a blue party. So if you read a certain number of blue bonnet books, you get to come to the party where you eat all foods that are blue and, you know, <laughs> only drinks that are blue and you have to wear blue and there are all kinds of, of blue related activities. That's very um, cool. I the the other thing that I thought was cool about it, which I didn't didn't think about, is I guess one of the reasons why they think it's a a fun idea and maybe has been so popular. It's a great way, I think, to develop that sense in a kid of like that they can choose what they like, right? So it's mm-hmm. like you read five books, and which one do you like, and then which one do we all like? And I, I think that's pretty cool. Um, yeah. But when I was looking at the list of books of the ones that won, 
not a ton of them from when I was right in school stood out, but the, I think the first two, because I think the, the first prize was in 81 from my research. And that was a Ramona or I think Ramona and her father, which I remember that from the, you know, uh, mm. Beverly Cleary Ramona books. Mm -hmm. And then the second one, which was super fudge, which I remember that one as well. <laughs> um, yes. And then after that, there was a bunch that I didn't really remember a little bit. I, I didn't dig into too much. But then later it was like once I, I think already left Texas and was a little bit older. But the, the stinky cheese man, I think, was also. one. Yes, that is a yeah. classic. John Sheshka. Yeah. Stinky Cheese Man and Other Tales. Yeah, he is fantastic. <laughs> yeah, very good. Anyway, not directly related to the flower, but it is Blue Bonnet. And I, I think they just chose the name because it's the Texas State flower and it's and it's cool. But I, I totally remember yeah. like the books and that, that would have that would have the sticker, you know, mm -hmm. so they would have like the Newberry Award uh uh like silver yeah, the thing. Metal on, on it, but, the cover. Yeah, but mm -hmm. then they would also have the Texas uh Blue Bonnet Award sticker on them too. Yes, yes. That's so exciting. Yep. Anyway, well, that's what I have to say about blue bonnets. That was so interesting. I learned some stuff. Thank you, Steve. I will Thank think you of you in the spring when the blue bonnets bloom. <laughs> Can I blue bonnet on your new bonnet? And I'll wear a yellow robe. And we'll keep our hearts in tune with a horse and buggy moon. Way out where the blue bonnet grows. Come along, my pretty, get into your frills and bows. And will you get your ma and ask her if your petticoat shows? Pin a blue bonnet on your new bonnet, and I'll wear a yellow rose. Here at the end of the show, I want to talk about the Texas Wildflower Program. When I was talking with Genevieve about uh, blue bonnets, we talked about this program Texas has to grow wildflowers along highways in the state. And I decided to look that up a little bit because I've heard it's like a really like big thing. And it is. It's very impressive. Um, it is. It was started in 1932 when the Texas Department of Transportation hired a guy named Jack Goebbels uh, as its first landscape architect. And uh, the idea was to, to plant all these flowers to to do a number of things, to control erosion, to reduce water use, to provide food and habitat for pollinators and wildlife, but also maybe not so um, obvious and, and maybe uh, lending more to the fact that it, this is done by the Department of Transportation. They also say that it increases driver alertness and safety. It reduces road maintenance costs when you have those shoulders with native plants, and it supports tourism. So it's it's altogether a really like great program. Uh, to just plant these native wildflowers all along these highways all around Texas. In fact, there are over 800,000 acres preserved to maintain native plants by the Texas Department of Transportation, which is really incredible. Just a few facts about what the program does. I found this really great page on the Texas Department of Transportation's website, which talks about the program, and they talked about the three things that they do related to keeping these native wildflowers growing all over the roadsides in Texas. One is delayed mowing. So this is, I think, the most important. I think this was the idea that this guy Jack Goebbels had back in 1932. You know, it's to wait to mow the, the sides of the roads until after the flowers have bloomed and the seeds have set and the seeds have dispersed so that next year you will have more growth. So that is number one, and that has been really successful to promote uh, wild plant growth in Texas, which is pretty cool. The second thing they do is to sow native seeds. 
And they do that. They plant a ton of wildflower seeds all over Texas. Um, and I'll link in the show notes to this page. And they talk about just, you know, how that goes. And it's very incredible. And it's a great way to preserve uh, native plant life. And then the third thing they do is they slow weed growth. So going in there and, and weeding and getting rid of all the non-native plants that might be overcompeting the native plants, the beautiful wildflowers, the blue bonnets. So a really cool program that, uh, that Texas has. And uh, if you're driving in Texas um, and you see wildflowers along the road, just uh, thank the Texas Department of Transportation. My guest on this episode of Rootbound was Genevieve Kareem. Genevieve is an elementary school librarian in Austin, Texas. If you like Rootbound and you want to support the show, you can head on over to rootboundpodcast.com support and find out all the ways you can support the show, including supporting the show on Patreon. Rootbound is hosted by Steve Ellington, who will never give you white hydrangeas. Music by Christian Kriegeskota. Fake ads by David Lani. Rootbound is a podcast about plants for when you're stuck inside, but if you can go outside, take a drive and observe the wildflowers, but just don't end up in bluebonnet jail. February, the Impatient Gardener's March. Sounds like it's from Sousa, the Impatient Gardener's March. Not one of his more popular ones. Blue Bonnet Jail.